And before we move out of a kind of a, a place of, of just praise and a place where we're just kind of focused on Jesus and his goodness to us, um, I'm just going to ask um, um, Philip just to come and, and to share and give us an update. Um, obviously, we, we prayed for Phil and Kathy last week, which was, was great. And, um, and Philip just wants to, to share how God's been at work through this week since then. So thank you, Philip. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> um, I'm still standing. I feel as though I've been like a pin cushion the last week. Um, I went, uh, well, after the prayers here on Sunday, um, I rang up my GP on the Monday morning, and uh, she arranged to see me. And because I've been getting palpitations for, I don't know, about two months now, and a slight pressure on my chest, she felt I needed to go into hospital. So I, Kathy took me down to the... Uh, uh, acute GP down at uh, Trelisk, and I hadn't been to hospital for years, and it was quite an unnerving experience. And uh, but I was put in a bed that was number five, and God always speaks to me through numbers. And uh, five, as some of you know, is, is God's grace. So I thought, well, okay, Lord, I'll trust Your grace to carry me through this week. And then I was put into a, a medical admissions ward where they've got anyone who comes in. Uh, with any problem, all in together. And uh, the first night was okay in there, but the second night, it was um, the full moon. And some of you know that lunatics, it's called, they're called lunatics because they go mad, tend to, when it's a full moon. And all hell was let loose in the ward that night. Uh, there were people screaming, people refusing to have their treatment, taking their medication off them. Uh, a, a man in another ward um, sounded so demonized. I don't know if you've seen the film Lord of the Rings uh, with Gollum. Do you know the chap Gollum? With a terrible rasping voice. Well, this guy had this voice, and they had about 10 people trying to restrain him. So eventually I got out of my bed and got on my knees, and I just said, Jesus, all authority is given unto you. And I just started to bind down what was going on. And by about one o'clock in the morning, it all just eventually came down. But it was quite an intense battle to pray in there, when, particularly when you're not feeling particularly well. And I said, Lord, I need to get out of here. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, he had mercy on me. I'd just gone one o'clock. They came in and took my bed to another ward. So I was so relieved. So what, about half past one, two o'clock in the morning, I was wheeled into the um, coronary investigation unit. And uh, I was in a room of five, and I thought, well, that ties in with five at the beginning. So I, I, s I had a reasonable night's sleep. And then um, on my, it was quite good with um, smartphones. You can keep in touch with people. And someone who was praying for me in Launceston, she said, Philip, you're in hospital for a divine appointment. So I thought, okay. <laughs> so I started praying for people on the ward. And the next morning, on the adjoining bed, there was a, an Indian-born Muslim, and he said, anyone who believes in God needs to have their head examined. I'm an atheist. I don't want anything to do with any of it. He just made this statement without me, and I thought, oh, goodness, I, I won't bother with him <laughs> for a moment. But uh, anyway, um, I, that night, um, uh, once we'd gone to bed, and they put the curtains around your bed, the curtains are about two feet off the floor. 
And I decided to get on my knees and pray for people in the ward and pray for what was going on. And unbeknown to me, this Indian guy saw me under the curtain praying. So the next morning, he said to me, goodness, what were you doing on your knees last night? So I had to admit that I was praying. And he was really amazed that anyone in this modern age could have faith. So I started sharing with this hard nut about God and about Jesus. And he was really interested. And uh, I did actually take a whole lot of tracks in with me, and he took one. And then I started on the other ones in the room. And uh, there was a, a guy opposite me who was brought up as a, as a Christian um, in West Cornwall years ago, and he lost his faith. He went traveling around the world. He went to Taiwan and went into Taoism. Taoism, is it? Some, anyway, got into, off on the wrong track completely. And uh, it was interesting. He had a, um, a thing in his heart that gave him a big shock when his heart didn't work properly. And he shared uh, that one night he had this happen, and he said to me in the morning, he said, Philip, um, just before this big shock kicked into my heart, I was dreaming that I was going down this black hole into, into darkness. And I said, well, that's, you know, you need to turn to Christ. And he said, oh, I've done all that. He said, I was a Christian in my youth. And I said, well, that's the only way if you want to go upwards when you die, uh, you'll need to have. So anyway, on the day I left, he took a track from me. And then there was a Chinese guy in the corner. And uh, he didn't speak much English at all, but he was very friendly. And I was praying for him. And his son and children came in. And I was able to give him a tract before he left. And then the Indian gentleman left. And another guy came in who um, uh, was, I don't know, involved in public transport in Cornwall. And he looked quite a sort of forbidding character. And I thought, goodness, how am I going to approach this chap? Anyway, I, I thought, well, on the last morning, I'll go up to him. I said, goodness, have you got any faith in God? And he said, well, it's funny you should say that. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were at Hampton Court Palace, and we're both atheists, and my wife went into the chapel, and she felt the presence of God, and she felt God speak to her. And, and, and I said, well, do you think she'd like this track? He said, you bet she would. <laughs> uh, she'll, she'll really want to know, uh, you know how to find God properly, you know. So, and he said, well, I'm, I'm not interested in the moment. And I said, well, if your wife... Uh, gets it, you will in, in due time, I'm sure. <laughs> and then there was a guy on the other side of my bed, um, a, a lovely man who who'd had real problems. He was going to have to have a heart transplant, and he was really broken. And he was uh, an Anglican uh, in West Cornwall, uh, sounded like a very dead church, but I could see he was a lovely person. And uh, I just shared with him um, about my, my life, and uh, he took a track for me, which was lovely. And then just before I left, the guy who came in, as I got out of my bed, they wheeled another guy in, in the slot I was in. So I thought, oh, I wonder what this bloke's up to, Lord. So um, he was a guy called Donald from Truen near St. Austell, chap about 85 with serious heart problems. And uh, I said, have you got any faith? He said, well, I was brought up in chapel, went to Sunday school, but, you know, I haven't had anything to do with God for years. And I said, well, you know, if you, would you like to get your faith back? And he said, yes, I would. And I said, well, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Would you like to 
read your Bible. It's in the cabinet beside your bed. And he said, no, I'm too weak to cope with even holding that book. And I said, would you take a tract? He said, I would. And he, he said, has it got scriptures in it? I said, yeah, it's full of scriptures. He said, I look forward to reading that. So, you know, you just don't know when you go into hospital what, is, what God has in store. And uh, I, as it happened, I, I had an angiogram in there, and they found all my arteries are normal. Uh, so they haven't found the root of the problem. Uh, so on, after the operation on Friday morning, they said, you can go. So I was a bit shocked. <laughs> uh, I, I felt pretty faint because uh, the angiogram, it's quite an intrusive operation they they pass a catheter up your arteries into your heart and look around your heart under an x-ray and uh, put dye in your bloodstream you feel a bit you know faint as in fact i still feel a bit odd but um anyway the purpose of me going in there i'm sure was just to testify to all these people and as i was going out i thought well i've got nothing to lose now lord so i went to all the staff that were in there and i said would you like a tract to tell you the good news and the guy said yeah my mum it's a born-again Christian. I've never wanted having to do with it. Perhaps I might read it. That was the guy on the tea trolley. So, um, so anyway, all things worked together for good. I mean, I went into hospital thinking they were going to find the cause of my health problems, and they didn't find it. But God wanted me in there, I believe, to testify for him to be his, his ambassador. And all the time, wherever we go, we are his ambassador. And, I mean, whether we die or live, isn't that important it's you know what we do when we're alive and we're here for the sake of the lost primarily and that's why this mission this week is so important to pray for those that don't know the lord that they'll come and hear the good news but thank you for all those who prayed for me i did feel carried along and kathy particularly it was the first time she'd um, been on her own in the house since we've been married and it was quite a difficult week for her and uh, she felt really lifted up by everyone so, thank you all. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for all your prayers and emails and texts. And goodness knows what. What Philip didn't tell you was, I'd warmed the bed for him. <laughs> I actually think I was in number five as well. So... <laughs> But it's absolutely amazing because God, you know, Philip and I, we can testify to God's presence in hospital, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. The peace of the Lord in, in there. And like Philip said, having a catheter and, and having things stuck up your heart, in your heart, from your groin, from your wrist, because I had both of them, you need a bit of peace, you know. Anyway, the thing was, God gave me a verse. And it's quite, quite useful, really. Um... I will will not die, but I will live to tell what the Lord has done. And it's to tell what the Lord has done is why I'm here now. I wouldn't be here otherwise. What God did, he amazingly timed it so that Heidi was at the back when I first really got quite awful. I got in the ambulance, and the guy in the ambulance, his father's a missionary in Peru, but he's not going on with God. So I talked to him about that and the other guy. So it started the minute I got in the ambulance. I got into the hospital. The first guy I talked to in the ward was a Jewish guy, and he sort of beelined me, gave me his address, he wanted to keep in touch, and he'd become a Christian and walked away. I feel God wants to talk to Mike, so I'm going to keep in touch with him. The last person I met was called um, Cliff, and he was a Jew, 
And he said, he used the Lord's name in vain. So I said, oh man. He said, what do you do that for? I said, I'm a Christian. And he sort of opened things up a bit. But it was going on all the time. And in the number of people I could talk to about the Lord was amazing. Just the, mainly the nurses, actually, because they were all prettier than the other guys. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but when I got to the point where I was taken out of the CCU, where I had a fantastic time. <laughs> Sorry about that. And uh, into the ICU, which was a bit less fun, there was a guy who was a little bit out of it. He was a bit weird, uh, was unhappy. And I said to him, have you read your Bible lately? Well, I said, there's one in that cabinet. So I got out the Gideon's Testament, and I gave him John 3.16, my favorite starter. And off he went, and he kept reading it. And I was able to talk to Tony, another guy in there. And it kept rolling on, just like, Philip, you could not get away from talking about the Lord to people. And you had the peace all through the, both of the procedures I had. You don't fancy it, but I didn't have any problem. I mean, it was just a cruise. So thanks for your prayers. I think you must have backed me up. And I just give the glory to God that he took me through it. And I did not die. I lived. And here I am. Say so thank you, Lord. Thank you for your prayers. Brilliant. Well, I, um, I don't know how many of you um, watch or read the news regularly. I imagine most of you do at some point or another. And, uh, and sometimes you come across some headlines that it can be quite hard to believe, don't you? And you, you kind of wonder where they came from. Here's one that I want to just kick off with that I came across this week. It's actually from a BBC article back in January 2007. So it's a, it's a few years old now. Uh, if you could pop up, that would be great. Um, it's the headline that we saw. Duck survives... Two days in the fridge. This is what the article said. It said, a duck in the U.S. state of Florida has survived gunshot wounds and a two-day stint in a refrigerator. A hunter shot the duck, wounding it in the wing and leg. Believing the bird was dead, he left it in his fridge in his home in Tallahassee. The hunter's wife got a fright when she opened the fridge and the duck lifted its head. How would you feel if you went into your fridge later on to get the chicken out for your Sunday roast and instead of finding it nice and plucked and packaged, you find it fully feathered and it raises its head to eyeball you just before you put it in the oven? be a bit of a shock, wouldn't it? And um, it might put you off the roast that you were planning. Once you go over the shock, I wonder how, what you'd do next. If you found a, a, a duck or a chicken in, in your fridge, what you'd do next? Well, this family, I find it quite amazing. This family purposefully went out and shot the duck and brought it home to eat it. And yet when they discovered it there and it was still alive, they didn't finish the job. They rang the local bird sanctuary. And, um, and they, took, they came and took the duck away. And the story doesn't stop there. So a week later, this headline came up on the BBC. There we go. Duck comes back from the dead again. And, and the article then goes on and says, A duck that survived being shot and spending two days in a refrigerator has now overcome major surgery, despite briefly dying on the operating table. Florida vets working to repair gunshot damage to Perky's wing, so the duck's got a name now, um, panicked when the duck twice stopped breathing. At one point, said Susan May, treasurer of Goose Creek Animal Sanctuary, the duck was given pure oxygen through a face mask. And at that point, the vet then turned around and said, I'm sorry, she's gone. The room fell into shocked silence as those present took in the news. But then Perky raised her head and started flapping her wings. This duck has taken us all on an emotional roller coaster, said Miss 
May. Who's ever heard of a duck coming back from the dead before? I certainly hadn't. And, and this morning we're, we're going to look um, at an encounter with Jesus that leads to something even more incredible than Perky's story. And the encounter that we're, we're going to look at is one between Jesus and Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And, and to give you a little bit of background, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are three people that Jesus knows really well. They're his friends. They're people that he would say he loves and that he wants to spend time with and people that love him. But there comes a time when one day Lazarus is very ill. We, we don't know exactly what caused it or what it was that he was ill with, um, only that it was bad and it was really bad. There was nothing that Mary and, and Martha could do to, to try and help him and to make things better. And so what they did is they sent a messenger to go and see Jesus. And, and they sent him to go as fast as he could and to tell Jesus, Lazarus, who you love, is ill. And Jesus at, at this time was about a day and a half or, or two days journey away from where they lived. And, and so you, you can imagine Mary and Martha staying there with Lazarus, wiping his brow, reassuring him and telling him, it's okay, we've sent a message to Jesus. It's okay. Jesus is coming. It's okay. He'll make everything better. And so Mary and Martha, they waited, and they waited, and they watched, and they waited. But when Jesus got the message, he didn't jump up and and rush to see them. Instead, Jesus stayed where he was for another two days before he finally said to his followers, it's time now to go and see Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we're going to read what it is that happens next in John 11, verses 17 to 44. Um, I'm just going to pray, um, but feel free to find it in your Bibles. It'll pop up on the screen here too, and then um, and we'll go through that. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the stories that we've heard about how you bring good in the least expected situations. I want to thank you, God, that that is the case in in this situation we're going to look at here today. God, we just want to pray that you would be on the move, that you would begin to speak into our hearts and lives, that you would begin to um, just open us up to see something more of who you are. You would begin to give us your perspective on the situations that we're facing in life and where it is and how it is that you might be at work amongst them. Just pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. So, carrying on in the story, this is what John writes, starting in verse 17. He says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You know, the reporters who thought that the story about Perky the Duck was incredible really should have met Jesus, shouldn't they? You know, unlike Perky, Lazarus wasn't pronounced dead for for mere moments with the oxygen mask there. He wasn't just put in the tomb mistakenly by accident, not realizing that he was actually it was just a wound that he was carrying. Lazarus had been dead for four days before Jesus turned up. And we read that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days a couple of different times in the passage that we read. And the fact that it was four days is significant because in a Jewish understanding of death, you have to understand that in the, in the Jewish world, they, their understanding was that when a person died for the first three days that they were in the tomb, the spirit would be there and it would kind of hover over them, um, kind of looking for an opportunity to kind of return and re-enter the body. But then when the, the, the spirit began to see the body to decay, when it began to see the visible evidence of, of death that was there, it would realize that there was no hope anymore. And so it would leave the body and it would go. And that would usually happen after about three days. It was at that point that the people would realize that there was really no hope. That this person wasn't just dead, they were really dead. And they weren't coming back again. So it's significant that it's on the fourth day. After Lazarus has been buried in the tomb, when it's come to the point that all of the people there have realized that Lazarus isn't just dead, he's really, really, really dead. That it's at this point that Jesus arrives. It's at this point that Jesus comes and says, roll the stone away. It's at this point that he shouts out, Lazarus, come out. It's at this point when Mary and Martha and the Jewish people have given up all hope that Jesus raises Lazarus back to life. Do you know Jesus specializes in hopeless situations? You know, when you face situations that seem impossible and hopeless, in those relationships that seem broken beyond repair, when you think of the dreams that you have and that seem to have died and just been forgotten, I want you to know that Jesus loves you and he specializes in hopeless situations. You know, we might not always understand why things have happened the way that they have. 
We might not understand why we find ourselves in the places that we do. You know, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the Jewish people, they certainly didn't understand what was going on. It didn't fit with what they were expecting or the model that they had or the way they thought things should be. They didn't understand why Lazarus had been allowed to die. What we see here is that we have a great God who has authority over all things. And with one shout of authority from Jesus, a four-day-old dead man comes back to life. So Jesus can speak a word into our lives that can change everything, no matter how hopeless or impossible things may seem. That's our Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? But what I love about this story is that we don't just get a glimpse of of God's power and authority, uh, as great as that is, but actually what we get to see is how in the midst of seemingly hopeless and impossible situations, God cares for us individually. He knows what it is that we need in that moment. And he knows how to meet us where we're at. We see something through Jesus' encounter with Martha and with Mary uh, uh, and his different responses to them which show us that. You know, it's, it's obvious if you, it, you read through the passage and things earlier that, that Jesus already knew Mary and Martha. This wasn't new guys to him. He already had a relationship with them. And you can find out something more about that, um, particularly in Luke 10. And if you read that, what you'll discover is that Martha is the kind of person who wants to organize everything. She's the kind of person who, if you get together for, and have a party, she wants to organize your fun and make sure every moment is planned out and structured and productive and efficient. She's the kind of person who is a proactive go-getter, who needs everything to be just right. She's a perfectionist and a doer. She's practical in the way that she approaches things. And when she sees a problem, she's the kind of person who is looking for an explanation and a fix. Does anyone relate to Martha? I know I certainly do. You know, Mary's completely different, isn't she? Mary's emotional. She wears a heart on her sleeve. She's the kind of person who um, will, will cry at everything, but will also laugh at everything. She's the kind of person who, who you know, when she, she's with people, she wants to come alongside them. She's the kind of person who's empathetic and compassionate. She's the kind of person who, when it comes to a party, organization is the last thing on her mind. All that she's interested in is making the most of the time with the people. You know, when we, we read in the story that, that Jesus encounters Martha first, and she runs to him, and the first thing that she says is, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And I think there's an element in, of, of faith in what it is that she says. She recognizes and she knows who Jesus is. She knows what he's capable of. But I think there's also an element of despair and disappointment and hopelessness. That if Jesus had only turned up back when Lazarus was alive, everything would have been different. But now it's too late. But then it's almost like she catches herself. And she realizes what it is that she's saying. And and she she realizes she's speaking out of her grief. And she doesn't want Jesus to get the wrong impression and think that she's trying to blame him for everything. So so she quickly turns around and, and she says, even now, I know whatever you ask from God, he'll give you. Despite that great statement, do you think that at the back of her mind she was really expecting Lazarus to come back to life? I don't think she was. I think she'd given up hope. 
But she wanted to make it clear that despite her disappointment, she still believed in Jesus. And as we look at how Jesus responds to Martha, we see how he cares for each of us as individuals. How he knew the way Martha thought. He knew the way that she worked. He knew what it was that was going through her mind and the way that she was trying to make sense of things. He knew what it was that she needed in that moment. He knew that she was a practical, pragmatic thinker who was trying to find an explanation. And so he engages her in a conversation. He tries to help her to gain some perspective and to see things the way that he does. And to bring us some comfort through explaining what it is that's going on. Now, if I tried that approach with Rosie, it wouldn't go very well. You know, if things go wrong, or Rosie's finding things hard, or she's upset, she doesn't want me to come along and give her an explanation, or to try and fix the problem, or to rationally talk through objectively what it is that's really going on here. She just wants me to listen. To give her a hug, to demonstrate that I care about her and that I understand that I see things as she sees things and understand why she's at where she's at. But Martha didn't need that. Martha didn't need a hug in that moment. She didn't need Jesus to come along and just listen to her. Martha needed someone to talk her through what was really going on. So the first thing that Jesus says to her is, look, it's okay, your brother is going to rise again. And Martha, she misses the point, doesn't she? She doesn't get what Jesus means. She's like, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know that at the last day we're all going to be resurrected. I know that at the last day we're all going to be in heaven. You know, Martha thinks that Jesus is like someone who's coming along in your grief and saying, it's okay, well, they're in a better place now, aren't they? You'll get to see them again one day. Just like everybody else had been when they'd come to see her in in a grief and trying to comfort her. But Jesus knew what she needed. He wanted to talk it through with her. He wanted to help her to understand. He wanted to have a conversation that explained things and to open her eyes up. And so he looks her in the eyes and he says something incredible. He looks at this angry, grief-stricken, confused, emotional woman who has lost her brother that she loves. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus draws Martha's eyes away from her grief. He draws her her eyes away from her circumstances and her loss. And he draws her eyes to him. He says to her, Martha, you think the resurrection is an event at the last day, and it is. But you need to know that I am the resurrection and the life. You need to know that I am the giver of life, that apart from me there is no life. You need to know that I have all authority, that I have all power, that I'm in control. You need to know that you can trust me and believe in me, that you don't need to fear that it's going to be okay because of me. And here's the point. For those of us who are like Martha, for me, and anyone else who's like Martha, who are practical, pragmatic organizers, who are perfectionists, the kind of people who want to fix things, Jesus is showing us that when things get tough, we need to stop focusing on the problem. Stop focusing on the thing which is getting us down that we can't fix. And instead, focus our eyes on him. Remind ourselves of the truth about Jesus. He's saying when you're mad, or you're angry, or you're sad, or you're disappointed, or you're depressed, when things don't work out the way that you want them to, when your finances are in a mess, when everything feels out of control and you don't know how to fix it, remind yourself of the truth and focus again on me. 
Remind yourself that Jesus has all authority, all power, that he is in control, that he is the resurrection and the life, and so he specializes in bringing life into hopeless situations. And so as you trust in him, you don't need to fear. It's going to be okay. Then when Mary comes out to see Jesus, it's fascinating because she starts with exactly the same statement. She says, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word. Exactly the same as Martha said. You can imagine they must have been sat there saying this to each other as they've wondered through these four days, where is he? She carries the same grief, the same disappointment, the same sense of loss, the same hopelessness as her sister. And yet Jesus treats her completely differently. And I think he treats her differently because he knows that Mary doesn't need an explanation. She doesn't need a conversation or someone to, 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 come al- to kind of just tell her what she needs to do and how they can fix things. Jesus knows what Mary really needs is for someone to just come alongside her. To enter into her grief and her pain and her loss. To demonstrate that he cares. That he shares in what it is that she's going through. That he understands what it is that she's going through. And so we read the shortest but one of the most profound verses in the Bible where it simply says that Jesus wept. And by that one act, Jesus joins Mary in her grief. He understands what she needs most in that moment. And in compassion, he steps into her pain and her sorrow. And with complete sincerity and integrity, God weeps with her. And the point is this. For those of you who are more like Mary, who are emotional people who have to feel things in order to work through them and get out the other side, who need people to simply listen and understand and come alongside you where you're at. Jesus is showing you that when it gets tough, it's okay because he is with you. It's okay because he understands what it is that you're going through. It's okay because you're not alone. Jesus will walk you through the pain that you're facing, through the grief that you're facing, and he will bring you out the other side. And he can do that because he is the resurrection, and he is the life, and he specializes in bringing life into hopeless situations. So as you trust in him and as you believe in him, you don't need to fear. It's going to be okay. Now what I love in this is that we see that God doesn't stand aloof, expecting us to fit in with his kind of way of of dealing with things, expecting us to, to deal with our own weaknesses, to deal with our questions and our doubts and our struggles and the way we're trying to process things and just kind of lift our heads up and look at him. Instead, Jesus shows us that his heart is to meet us exactly where we're at, that he knows us intimately. He knows how different we all are and the different ways that we process things and struggle with things. And, and, and so Jesus is showing us that in, this, in our moments of weakness, in our moments of difficulties, he will come to us. He will meet us where we're at. 
And I think that demonstration of love and care is just amazing to see in these verses. So I want you to know today that when you face hard times, when you're confused and you don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening, why you don't understand what's going on and, and why it's been allowed to happen this way, God isn't looking down at you saying, snap out of it and pull yourself together. No, God draws near to you. He draws near to you where you're at in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that pain. And he knows what you need in that moment. And he wants to show you that he is with you, that there is hope, that he will bring you through the other side, that he is the answer and the only one that you need. You know, one of the things that I think can easily be missed in this encounter that Jesus has with Mary and Martha is what it really says, means when, when Jesus, it says that Jesus was deeply moved. You know, it can be easy when you're reading that and you, you understand the, the context that they're at a funeral and there's all these grieving people around. And a couple of verses later and, a, uh, and before, because it's, it's said a couple of times, it says that Jesus wept. It can be easy when you see that statement to think it simply means that he was moved by grief. And that he was, he was, it's the same thing as just Jesus wept, that he was moved by this kind of emotion of grief. But actually the word that is used in the, in the original kind of Greek but where it says that he was deeply moved means that he bellowed with anger. He's not just moved by sorrow, but he's angry. He's troubled. He's agitated. And why do you think that is? Why do you think in the midst of this funeral scene, among these people who are grieving and struggling with hopelessness, that internally Jesus is bellowing with anger? Who or what do you think it is that he's angry at? Do you know what I think is happening? I think that Jesus is looking at Mary and Martha. He's looking at these people that he knows and he loves and the pain and the grief that they are going through. And he's looking out at the crowd of people that are there that are, and, he, and the sense of hopelessness that surrounds them. I think he's thinking about his friend Lazarus and how his, his life has been cut short as he's suffered and he's died. And I think something rises up within him. This shout of, and this bellow of anger rises up within him and everything within him cries out, I did not make the world to be this way. And he looks around and he sees the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the hopelessness. And he looks around at the consequences of death and he is furious. He's angry at the evil in the world and the suffering and the death in his creation and the people that he loves and how they have to go through all of these different things because of it. The sense of righteous injustice that we feel when we see suffering in the world is just a shadow Of the righteous anger that rises up within God when he sees it. When he sees the suffering in your life. And in my life. You know, God did not make a world filled with sickness and suffering and death. And so when he looks out and he sees it, he bellows with anger. Now the reality is that suffering and sickness and death are not part of God's design. They exist in this world because of all that's wrong with a human heart. They exist in this world because time after time after time after time, whether it be people today, in the here and now, all the way back to Adam and Eve, what we see is that people again and again make their decisions based on selfishness and pride. 
They reject God's ways and choose to live life their own way. And by doing that, they're doing what the Bible calls sin. And it's this sin which is the cause of sin and suffering and sickness and death in this world. And God looks out at the people that he's made. He looks out at humanity and the mess that we are all making of our lives. He looks out at the suffering in the world and he looks at the suffering and the loss and the pain that is in your life and is in my life. And God bellows with anger. But you know, the great thing is that he bellows with anger because of his love. It's an anger which is motivated by his love and his care for Mary and Martha and his love and his care for you and for me. It's an anger which says, I have so much more for you and the resurrection and the life I came to give you life in all its fullness. And I hate to see you missing out. So when Jesus comes to the tomb where Lazarus is buried, he comes as a man who is angry with death who is angry at the pain and the sorrow and the hopelessness that he sees in the world. And he says, take the stone away. And he prays to the Father so that everyone will understand that he speaks with the Father's authority, that he has power over sin and death, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he specializes in bringing life into hopeless situations. And so in the midst of a crowd that has given up all hope, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And with that one shout of authority, a four-day-old dead man rises and comes back to life. I don't think any of them were expecting it, do you? You know, moments earlier, Martha had been there trying to persuade Jesus, not Mother moving the stone, just let out a stink. There was no sense of, of faith or expectation that was there. So can you imagine how shocked she and Mary and the rest of the crowd must have been when they suddenly see Lazarus standing there in front of them? You know, so shocked that they don't know what to do. None of them move. And so Jesus has to turn to them and to tell them, what are you waiting for? He's alive. Go take his bandages off. Go take his grave clothes off. Set him free. You know, in this encounter, Jesus makes it clear that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the source of life and he specializes in bringing life into hopeless situations. The way that he does that might not always be the way that we expect it. The way that he does that might not always be in the timing that we might like. But as we put our hope and our trust in Jesus, he promises to bring life and peace into what feel like hopeless situations. Now, I think Jesus wants to speak specifically to some of you here this morning. And to tell you that he has the power to bring life even when it might seem impossible. Even when it looks like something really is very dead. Even when you've given up hope. It might not be that you've, you know, to do with a lost loved one like it was with Mary and Martha, but maybe you feel like you've had hopes and dreams that are dead or relationships with people that have died and withered away. Some of you might be concerned about your children. And be thinking, is there really any hope left for them? They seem to have gone so far off the rails. And God wants to speak to you this morning and to tell you that he is the resurrection. And he is the life. 
And he specializes in bringing life into hopeless situations. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. He is your good heavenly father. And he wants you to know that despite how you might feel sometimes, you are not alone. Despite how you might feel sometimes, he is always with you. And he will never leave you. Despite how you might feel, he is not the one to blame for your struggles and your suffering and your pain. In fact, you know what? He is just as angry about it as you are. He wants you to know that despite how you may feel, there is no situation in your life that is too far gone that it should ever be called hopeless. He wants you to know that he specializes in bringing life into hopeless situations. And this morning I think he wants to ask you a simple question and it's a question that he asked Martha after he'd explained things to her in that encounter that we've looked at today. He wants to ask you, do you believe this? Do you put your trust in me? Do you believe this? Now I think sometimes it's hard to when it you know it can be hard to believe we can have hope. Sometimes I think it can seem like things are really, really dead. Like they've been in the tomb for four days. Hope's all gone. It's too late. But Jesus wants you to know that as you trust in him, as you believe in him, as you look to him, he is the resurrection and he is the life. And he knows what you need in every moment. And he promises to be with you. So this morning I want to give you an opportunity. An opportunity for those of you who have situations where you've given up hope. Maybe hope for the dreams that you had in life. Hope for the purpose that God had for you and and what you were going to do with your life. Maybe hope for a relationship that seems to be broken beyond repair. Maybe hope for your children and their future and how they're going on with God. Whatever it might be, I want to give you the opportunity to today to say, I put my trust in you, Jesus. I believe in you. Thank you that for you, nothing is impossible. Nothing is ever too far gone. No pit is too deep. Thank you that you specialize in bringing life into hopeless situations.